0: If you are affected by the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit LGBTQI plus people and need immediate emotional assistance, please call 1-844-413-6649.
1: Hello and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and
0: Luke Boyd.
1: Welcome back, everybody. How you doing, hey Luke? There.
0: Doing well. How are you, my dear?
1: I'm fantastic. Um, Before we jump in on today's episode, today's part two, which I'm very excited to get into, um, just a couple of housekeeping notes (laughs) Mm -hmm. just to keep you guys informed on what's the latest and greatest with the Morbid Museum. So a couple of weeks ago, you guys may have been like, hey, there's no episode this week. It's just a Patreon preview. And that's sharp of you to notice that folks because (laughs) that was on purpose (laughs) Um, more and more Luke and I are going to be sort of doing a few episodes here and then dropping in a morbid Monday as just a Patreon preview. And, you know, this is a model that we're trying out because especially this time of year in our careers in the museum world and cultural nonprofits, the spring into summertime is wild. It's incredibly busy. It's incredibly stressful. And so we want to make sure that we're still supplying everyone with content. So we figured a way to get our amazing Patreon subscribers the stuff that they deserve and that they're paying for. We want to make sure we're always making content for them, but we certainly don't want to give up. On our regular Monday schedule So we figured this was a good compromise And of course if you are missing us So much on Mondays You can always become a more buddy And then you will never miss us On a Monday
0: (laughs) So That's right Um, This time of year is uh, the peak season For museums and institutions in New York um, Bananas Temperate weather areas (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just a lot going on In our professional lives and we want to keep the, the the content up and so we're going to do our best to yes. do that um, thank you so much to our more buddies who have been supporting us thank you for the uh for the attention on our on our videos and content uh, we really appreciate it and we look forward to continuing this uh stream so and
1: and in that same vein luke by the time this episode comes out we'll have celebrated our one-year anniversary of Morbid Museum. That's right.
0: It's our morbiversary.
1: Our morbiversary, <laughs> baby. <laughs> my
0: baby. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> one year. Amazing.
1: I know. It was um, – I have it in my calendar, like, literally, Morbid Museum launches. What is mm-hmm. it? That? It's the third, right? Yeah, June that sounds third. right. It's the beginning of June. Mm-hmm. Yep. So – Guys, thank you to everyone who's been with us since day one and all of you who have come since. This has been an amazing first year of this show. We're having the best time. And we, like Luke said, we love your feedback. We love your comments. We love our conversations with you, too. Never be, never feel the need to be shy. Like, we love chatting with everybody, either through direct messages, email, directly on posts on Instagram, reach out. We're, in case you can't tell, we're very chatty bitches. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and in museums, they're always dying for a dialogue, even though museums is usually a one-way conversation. Yes! So the podcast for the Morbid Museum is no exception. We are we are dying not to fill just the air with our own voices, but the voices of our <laughs> listeners and supporters and museum patrons. So.
1: Yes. And if, you know, if this garners enough interest, maybe in the future, we'll we'll do a little live chit-chat or something if people, if that's something people want.
0: Yeah. Uh, or I'd like love me meetup. To- yeah, there's yeah, some, something great, like that. some great ideas coming down the pike. Um, so
1: all of that uh, business aside, let's get back into the business of this terrible story where now you set the stage so beautifully for us last week, Luke, explaining really the why behind mm-hmm. the Highway of Tears. So now we're going to get into the actual story of the Highway of, Te- of Tears this week. Yes,
0: That's right. So this is uh, part two of the Highway of Tears series. Uh, In part one, we covered the underlying systems of oppression of Aboriginal people in Canada. For more than a hundred years, young people were forced to attend Indian residential schools, which were designed to assimilate them into the dominant culture, that being the European white colonist descended culture in Canada. And we discussed how the Indian residential schools basically severed the flow of oral tradition and of culture and has engendered an intergenerational trauma on the ensuing generations of First Nations or Aboriginal people in the nation of Canada. This is something that's happened also in America, and uh, the United States of America, and in Australia, uh, ac- across the Anglosphere, as we might describe. Yeah. Um, this, the idea of compounding trauma is at the heart of these Highway of Tears conversations, and so we wanted to set the stage with that understanding before we delve a little more deeply into the ongoing tragedy that is the Highway of Tears today.
1: Very, very important context, Luke. I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad you
0: designed it this way. It's a big deal. Yeah, it was sort of you know you could you could do many parts on just the the, the murdered and missing women and the cases and oh, yeah. you know, those individual stories. Unfortunately, yeah and many of those stories rhyme with other highway murderers that we know in the united states and the Mm -hmm. west um it all comes out of like this interstate highway era you know in the 1950s and 60s yeah and the the stitching together of the continent with the car so compounding the trauma that is to be a native person in canada is the crisis of murdered and missing aboriginal women in canada which extends beyond british columbia which is where the highway of tears is this story begins around 50 years ago in the late 1960s and since then a disproportionate amount of women have disappeared from Canadian country roads and interstates. And, of course, to remind you all, in British Columbia, the 450-mile stretch of Highway 16 from Prince George in the inland to Prince Rupert at the Pacific Ocean shore has become known by the unfortunate moniker the Highway of Tears for the sheer mass quantity of missing and murdered persons cases along this highway. Insanity. So... Native people today are the inherents of a system of genocide and cultural reprogramming. The residential schools were sites of physical and sexual abuse and were engineered to break down tribal networks and families, severing people from their loved ones. The survivors who came out of the system over the past century internalized that trauma and passed it down to the next generation, creating a vicious cycle. For example, if I'm a survivor of a residential Indian school, I might cope with that trauma in various ways if it's mm-hmm. not addressed with a therapist, right? Think about alcoholism, drug abuse, things like that. If that if that trauma is never processed, that, if manifestation that coping mechanism, the alcoholism, is passed on to my children or to my nieces and nephews, whoever I'm I'm living with, and this is something that's not new in our study of trauma and abuse, not at all. No, we talked we talked about that pretty heavily last week too. Yeah, right. And these First Nation communities are continually socially and economically marginalized, as they are in the United States. They're plagued by poverty, drug abuse, domestic violence, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. In a sense, the violence of colonial rule has never ceased. It's never gone away. No. First Nation people live on reserves with poor infrastructure and limited services. Yeah. Young people, namely women, are drawn to population centers for employment. They go there for entertainment because where they live is boring. Um, <laughs> and they go there, <laughs> That's which fair. is the problem of many people. Um, and, of course, essential services. Um, where And they have to hitchhike along these highways to get from place to place. Right. And there are all these...
1: I was going to say you mentioned that last time and and specifically it revolves around um, medical care. Right. And that women are generally more in need of that. I mean, we need to see gynecologists
0: and, and other doctors more regularly for follow up care. So, yeah, that's right. These, and if we're pregnant, all...
1: forget it. We're supposed to go to the doctor exactly. all the time.
0: Exactly. And to think about where that pregnancy came from, you know, in terms of abuse and things like that is a horrible yeah. nesting door. Well, that's no, true. And there's all these signs along the highway that say women don't hitchhike. And it usually is a memorial sign that has a few of the missing women oh. and it's a memorial to them. So these, you know, families who are missing their loved ones are making this clarion call. Do not go out there at night. Do not, you know, find yourself on these stretches of highway by yourself. That's so painful. 100 miles from home, you know.
1: Hitchhiking is so scary. It's a just terrifying terrifying. concept, but I, but I wonder like, do you and I find that to be a terrifying concept because we now live on the other side of the sixties and seventies and know what happened to all of the individuals who thought hitchhiking was safe, like to be someone living in the sixties and seventies, I would, I would need to like talk to my parents or something and be like, did, was it something that you would have ever done? Or even then were you like, this isn't a great idea.
0: (laughs) I think it was so much softer 50 Much years softer, ago.
1: Right. Like you think you watch all these like movies and stuff of people like, whoa, we're all going to Woodstock, man. Let's all get in this van. Let's pick up people along the way. Like it seems fine in theory, yeah. but
0: if you watch all the Jeffrey Dahmer in- incarnations, um every hitchhiker boy he picks up is like, oh, this is totally normal.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I can't even name all of the people that come to mind. I mean, Ed Kemper, all he did was pick up co ed girls looking for rides. Yeah, You know, it's just, it's this weird trust thing where it's such an, it's just too easy to disappear someone in this way. You're in total control once they're in your car.
0: You're in total control. And it's hard for us who live in the very densely populated Northeast. To really get our mind around the vast expanse of British Columbia. Oh yeah. You know, you're you're talking about, you know, you're between, you know, Washington State and Alaska for those Americo-centric folks. Mm-hmm. And it's a very desolate, very rugged, very wild country, just a lot of forested areas with not a lot of infrastructure. Yeah. So it's so easy to disappear. You get carnivores, you got all kinds of ways to disappear. Oh yeah.
1: And with this particular thing of hitchhiking, like it is always gonna be The largest swath of victims is going to be people who are more marginalized, people who can't afford cars of their own and -hmm. who have certain needs. And, yeah, maybe (laughs) taking into consideration, I would love to not hitchhike, but I don't have a choice. I'm a teenager who's running away from my abusive father. I'm, you know, in desperate need of some prenatal care. Cause I'm having a bad pregnancy. Like you gotta, you have to do what you have to do. Right. So you don't, you're just hoping that it turns out well, I guess.
0: Yes. Yeah. There's a really bleak, view that a lot of the folks share in the interviews that i've seen you know like there's a of course there's a vice piece on the highway of tears um you know and you meet these young people who sort of accept this very fatalistic approach that like you know well if i get you know if something happens to me, something happens to me i have to go from place to place um i have no choice my home life is not optimal yeah i have to move to a place like you know if you're living in certain you know usually population centers is where they can pick up work as a sex worker or other you know difficult risky behavior that is necessary a young person steals a loaf of bread, not because they want to, because they have. to. Right. You
1: know? Yeah. Which is why, I, you know, we always have to in these conversations be mindful of this is not victim blaming. People yes. have to do what they have to do. You know, yeah. if they had better come- options, they would have taken them.
0: And we've come a long way, too, from, from that idea of trust and stranger danger mm-hmm. to also dignifying people who find themselves in sex work or are on drugs, you know, whereas 30, 40 years ago it was a lot more judgmental, like, well, these folks are marginalized, they're erroneous to society, they're economic losers.
1: No, they're being, not ad- worth- <laughs> being addicted to drugs doesn't mean you deserve to be kidnapped no. and murdered.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, and I think if anything, you know, if there's any positive side effect of the true crime obsessed world we live in now, it's much more, you know, uh, compassionate towards victims. Definitely, um, I less think sensational. Yeah, yeah. And we talked about that a lot, and sort of how we we came upon this, this this subject matter and this subject of this podcast in general. Yeah, um, of how important that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all about the why, and we spent a lot of time talking about the sociological reasons of the why of the Highway of Tears before. Yeah. In terms of the numbers, Katie, it's you know like like everything else in this world it's the numbers differ depending on who you talk to sure in canada uh, across the provinces there has been probably more than a thousand women reported missing and murdered in the last 50 years
1: only in the 50 years yeah wow
0: and probably a hundred of those are uh, along the highway of tears Ooh, that's brutal not all are first nations women but most are. It's disproportionately weighed with indigenous indigenous women. Sure. There are also a lot of male victims, which are not going to be covered in today's podcast. And indigenous men are overrepresented in that category as well. Mm. So this could be a 16 part series, but this will be the the extent of today's um, discussion. Will be just a few victims that highlight the story of indigenous women in this uh, narrative. Okay. Um, So the number of murdered and missing women cases along the Highway of Tears is between 80 and 100, depending on who you talk to, many remain unsolved. And the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, as they are known. Best looking have... boys in
1: the business. <laughs>
0: we love a Mountie. We love a love Mountie. It. Absolutely. Love a Mountie.
1: Love a uniform.
0: Yes, yes. But here, we're going to shade them a little bit. No. Oh, no.
1: <laughs> we love them in theory. Love them, I love but... I think I just love Dudley Do, right? We <laughs> <think> <laughs> love the Mountie. Yeah, of
0: course. Let's get it. Let's get, Don't get it twisted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So of course the RCMP has faced a lot of criticism for their seeming mm. lack of interest and action in these cases. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stories of families reporting these missing missing women and the cases not being taken seriously or not seeing a lot of action very quickly. Conversely, mm. cases of white women along the highway of tears have garnered national press coverage, <gasps> community know. outrage. Mm. And so Absolutely. it's sad and true that, you know, a few of these cases that come up in like the 80s, if it's a young white girl, it all of a sudden becomes like there's a lot of posters, a lot of media attention, a lot of seeming community interest and in action, whereas the Native cases just languish on the vine and are not as front of mind. And I think this can certainly you can draw a parallel with like the, the, the cases of young women and men of color who have faced police violence. Yeah. And how there's a double standard in terms of how white people are treated at a a traffic stop or, you know, how they're uh, treated in any kind of policing situation and how that event is covered in the mass media. Oh,
1: I mean, even just the horrible thing that happened a couple of years ago where the young woman was traveling with her boyfriend. Was that was that last Mm -hmm. year? The the guy she was from here, I think here on Long Island where Mm -hmm. her and her boyfriend went. Um, traveling across the country and she was oh, like Debbie like, Petito. Thank you, Petito. That was the last name. Yeah. Not Debbie, that people were obsessed with that. Name. Huge
0: obsessed. Yeah.
1: And and understandably, people of color were like, what the fuck?
0: <laughs> yeah. Gabby Petito. Gabby All up in arms for Gabby Petito.
1: And a total tragedy of course. Horrible story. Not to take God. away from what happened to her and her family and the people who lost her. But it is it is noticed by many mm-hmm. that, yeah, if that if she had been black or, I mean, an immigrant or anything like never would have been news. Yeah.
0: And, you know, these police say these things apparently to these families like, oh, so and so this person's on a drink or on a drunk. Um, and it's often assumed that native people who, by and large, succumb to alcoholism on a, mar- on a, on a great level um, due to these, these societal issues. Um, often that's that's the, the reason. Like, oh, they're just running away. Oh, they're on a te- they're on a away, They're at a party. Yeah, they're on a bender. Just, right. Horrible kind of excuses. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these families have no resolution, no closure, no updates on these cases. Decades on. So there's been a lot of hand wringing and complaining and story creation in the media on these cases. I told you this first started really in the 1960s, 1969, yeah. 70s. The first case. It wasn't until 2005. That the RCMP launched what's called the ePana project, which seeks to focus on the unsolved missing uh, and murdered women and children cases along Highway 16. This is the first time that the police is saying, hey, maybe some of these cases are connected. <laughs> they never, they ne- apparently, aside from the errant, you know, goodwill uh, investigator, there weren't really these masks, these connections being made for 40 oh, plus years. Oh,
1: Mounties, you've done it Kill again.
0: Me. I hate it. <laughs> And what's crazy about this Epana caseload is that there's only 18 cases what? in the e in the Epana caseload. What? And it doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason because the cases range from like the 70s to 2010, to to 2020. So right. they're all over the place in terms of time. Not
1: likely the same person. <laughs> no,
0: not not like the same person. Maybe maybe one or t- there's a couple of connections between some of them, but um, it's really bizarre. And so. It's provincially funded, funding was slashed, blah, blah, mm. blah. So it's just another kind of a dead end in this story. But there are dedicated professionals in the RCMP who are trying to link these cases. And it should be noted that some of the cases in EPANA are not inside the Highway of Tears. Okay. So some are, outs- some are outside the Highway of Tears. So even then, you're not all focusing on those missing so, cases. when
1: you say that, is it other cases in British Columbia or in Canada in general? Or- in British Columbia, okay. I believe. Okay, so they're all within yeah. that. My so it's my other question. You see why? Okay, got it. So my other question, and maybe you can't answer this because if the numbers are too, um, you know, variable. A variable thank you. Um, <laughs> I was like, I don't even know what to call it. I don't even know. Um, what to call. Yeah, if the numbers vary too widely, then I guess. You also can't say how many of these are like still open cases, and because how many Hmm. are they willing to say are, you know, directed to this this specific issue of the highway of tears. You know, how can they make this connection? So I guess you can't. That's right. I guess my question is, you can't answer my question, can you?
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's not a lot of like there's not a lot of mutual exclusivity here. Not all highway of tears cases in general are indigenous. Not yeah. all the Epana cases are indigenous, not all are Highway of Tears, right. but there is crossover where most of the cases in Epana are related to the Highway of Tears. Okay. So when you're talking about Highway of Tears story, the Epana comes into the narrative because it started about almost 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, it makes sense.
0: So we're gonna bring to light a few of these cases to hopefully just shed light on the humanity of who the victims were, um, and also give a sense of the scale of of all of these cases and the the depth of trauma here. So. The first person I'm going to mention is a victim uh, whose name was Corrine Thomas. Mm. She was 21 years old, and she went missing in July of 1976. So she was hitchhiking home, and she was struck and killed by a gentleman's vehicle, a guy named Richard Reddikop. His truck was seen um, careening off the road and apparently um, killed her instantly. Oh, my God. Sadly, Corrine was with child. Oh, no. And was just... Days away, apparently, from her due date. <gasps> oh no! And both her and the baby are killed in this this vehicular manslaughter.
1: Double vehicular manslaughter. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Jesus. Uh,
0: it gets kind of yeah. It's very sad and very unfortunate. And again, it's sad to think that this person in the, in their state found themselves walking home hitchhiking in the middle of the night when they're very much pregnant. Oh, my
1: God. I could I could barely walk like a block right. by the end of my pregnancy, <laughs> and this poor woman right. is forced to hitchhike. I mean, that's god-awful. Yeah.
0: And Corrine Thomas was an, a First Nations woman. Mm. Um, now, here's where it gets interesting. So there was a whole sort of situation with the statements from the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses were young. They were like teenagers. And they made their initial statements to the RCMP, but they were coached to change their statements. They initially said that Reddickop swerved purposefully to hit Corrine Thomas. Whoa. Then the investigators coached the witnesses to say that Corrine was playing chicken with Redicop's truck. You know, aka,
1: those nine month pregnant women we love fucking
0: around. Right. You have cravings for all kinds of sugary things. And danger. We mostly crave danger. Violence. That's what yeah, we want. Right. That's anything. A biological impulse working against <laughs> itself, of course. Um, so the coroner's initial report ruled Corrine's death. An accident but this would later be revised in a public inquiry it was revealed that reticop swerved to hit Corrine thomas on purpose what the
1: actual fuck
0: it gets worse the crown did not press <gasps> charges on reticop and i cannot discern as to why
1: has anyone talked to those witnesses in more recent years
0: <sighs> i don't know why this sort of died on the vine but it bespeaks a institutional blindness here lord almighty Um, and what's further interesting is that there's connections here between these families so they might have known each other Corrine, the gentle lady who was killed her cousin larry thomas was killed two years prior by richard reticop's brother stanley along the same highway wow so these two families have like a you know almost romeo capulet i mean um, uh, uh, montague capulet level of like bloodshed between them but it's all on the one side of the white people killing the native people
1: yeah i was gonna say it sounds like it's pretty one <laughs> it's a
0: one-sided it's a one-sided massacre um but just the fact that they have these connections and um in fact the coroner you know uh who made the report on corinne's death also made the report on larry thomas's death years before mm-hmm. so he was called out because he's like you've seen this before you know what this is this is the same family who have this you know rage or issue with Seeing these native a pattern people. terrifying and i couldn't find out exactly what happened to stanley reddacott if he was in prison or what the story was there so this is you know this was almost 50 years ago
1: that's horrible that's really horrible <sighs> fuck those people jesus
0: i tell you yeah so we remember you know Corrine thomas among the many other victims of the highway of tears um Another gentle lady, and this is a few years later, about five years later, Roswitha Fuchsbickler, aged 13. So they they are there are some young victims in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, she was last seen in November of 1981. Her body was found a week later in a wooded area miles from her home. Her body was stripped of clothing. She was slashed, mangled, and humiliated, and killed by a single stab wound to the chest. Oh God. There was a a person charged in this crime. Edward Dennis Isaac was convicted with Roswitha's murder. He confessed to picking up the young hitchhiker and killing her to, quote, see what it felt like. Oh, my God. Now, this is interesting because there are at least three serial killers who are connected to the Highway of Tears murders, and Edward Dennis Isaac is one of them. Yes, I'm familiar with him. So Edward Dennis Isaac is arrested in... um, Mid 1982 or so. And so he's convicted of Ross Witha's murder, also Jean Mary Kovacs and Nina Marie Joseph. And those are in 1981 and 1982, respectively. And those, I believe, are the only three murders for which he was charged. But they were all along the highway of tears ha- happening about six months apart each. You know, so in quick succession. Um, hmm. And you know, for all of the shade being thrown at the RCMP, there there is some good police work that does come out of this. And in addition to some additional cases that we can discuss. Here. Yeah,
1: I mean, compared to some other serial killers who've gone on and on and on, that's mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say not bad, but it's better than some other police departments have done. I'll say that.
0: That's right. And when you you know, if you read a little bit about this or you see the coverage of the or the stuff on the web, they talk a lot about copycat killers. Yeah opportunity killers. So by by no means are we saying or is the, are the investigators saying there's one person to blame here. We're talking about almost 60 years of murders. Oh yeah. And you know, of more than, you know, hundred, hundreds of people in certain areas, so there's a lot of activity and a lot of people. And some of the some of the accused and convicted have also said they were working with different people. Uh, they had help, which is even more terrifying. Yeah. Yes, very much so. So th- those are in the 1980s. Jumping ahead a little bit to 2010, a young lady named Natasha Lynn Montgomery goes missing. She's 23 years old. Mm. She was a sex worker in British Columbia. Um, sadly, her body was never found. Mm. Um, but her DNA was discovered on the personal effects of serial killer Cody Lejabakov. Okay. Now, this is another topical story. This came out a couple of years ago, about 10 years ago. Cody Lejabakov was 20 years old when he was um, arrested. And apparently it was a routine traffic stop. And the police discovered bloody implements and evidence in his vehicle. Mm. And that led, that led to them discovering that he was in fact a young, very prolific serial killer. And Ooh. even though Nat- Natasha William Montgomery's body was never found... Her DNA was found in his personal effects, and so he is charged with her murder. In addition to Natasha Lynn Montgomery, Cody Lejabokoff is also guilty of killing Cynthia Francis Moss, and both Natasha and Cynthia are both indigenous people. Um, A few months after Natasha goes missing, Cynthia goes missing. In 2010, she's also a sex worker. Her body was found, however, in St. George in a local park. Um, She died of blunt force trauma and stab wounds. And an additional victim uh, that uh, Cody Lejabokov murdered was Lauren Dawn Leslie, who was 15 years old, who he met on a dating site. Um, So those are the three people for whom Lejabokov is found guilty of killing.
1: Dating sites are so scary.
0: (laughs) They are scary. um, Be careful out there. And. And this is the one Lejabakov says he's the one who he claims he had help, mm. but he didn't want to be known as a snitch. So he never gave up the names of his compatriots. Or there weren't any. <laughs> or there <laughs> were Or hear any.
1: me out. Yeah. There weren't any.
0: <laughs> that's my, that's my suspicion yeah. <laughs> is that there was, um, mm. especially like one person meeting on a dating site. It just doesn't seem like it would be a multiple person. Yeah. Initiative, I don't know that you would you need know. the help. <laughs> Yeah, so he's serving concurrent back-to-back life sentences in prison. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Rot. And there are so many other unfortunate stories where it's very similar circumstances. Young women who move away from their hometown end up in a population center where there is illicit activities, where there is sex work. And something has shifted in the Canadian legal system where a few years ago they passed a new law that made it illegal to purchase sex. So when they go out into these city centers, and they're looking for uh, johns, they arrest the johns, not the sex. I love that. I'm here for that. (laughs) Yes. And the cops who they're interviewing, you know, in this one video, they say, you know, it's clear to us that we're seeing multiple offenders, we're seeing guys who are also engaged in violence. And you know, they say it's it's interesting to think or to know that a lot of times these guys we pick up are likely suspects in some of these unsolved murders. But it's often hard to clink cases together when you're arresting one for a sex crime, you know, versus a murderer. So unless, hear me out. Yeah
1: make Uh it totally legal so that these people literally work in like offices and you have to go and like it's very formal it's like doing a city bike (laughs) they can follow up on you very easily (laughs) yeah put your
0: fingerprint right here to proceed right on Mm -hmm. that butt (laughs) yeah that would be great that's an interesting thing
1: well the more Um, legal you make something the less like i don't know it, it attracts right. monsters because it's illicit, because it's illegal, yes. because yes. everybody who's involved is under the radar. But if you're doing it like literally I'm employed by this escort agency, someone's going to know that I'm out there meeting a John right now. And I know his name and I That's have right. his fucking so- social security number and all this shit. Like no one's going to fuck with me. Yeah, it's a sim. It-
0: it's a similar argument for like regulating or legalizing yeah, absolutely drugs. the know, same. The idea. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're on something Thanks. there. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so uh, it's a, a sad reality that we cannot breathe life to every story. That's, that's, that's part of the highway. When of we tears. don't even know all um, of them.
1: I mean, that's the really we sad don't. reality. That's, that's the, that's, that's,
0: that's the other truth is that, you know, Where does this begin and end? And we're talking about British Columbia. There are many provinces in Canada, um, and this is a theme across the Canadian state, no matter where you are, from Manitoba Saskatchewan to British Columbia and back. So in terms of what's happened in the the years since, because as Katie mentioned in the first episode, um, this is a big story that's been breaking in Canada and internationally for some time. So there was a national inquiry that had long been lobbied and fought for um, where the RCMP and the federal government are working together to come up with like a task force and recommendations, you know, a big, sexy bound commission that the government can say, here we are doing Mm -hmm. something. The national inquiry, this report, was accepted by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in 2019, and at the start of Trudeau's remarks, he says, we have failed you, as in the government of Canada has failed Indigenous women and children and young girls especially. And the National Inquiry uh, into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls reported that Indigenous women and girls are 12 times more likely to be murdered or to go missing than members of any other demographic group in Canada, and 16 times more likely to be slain or to disappear than white women. <gasps> oh, that's brutal. That's brutal. Yeah. And Yeesh. Like, like the indian residential schools the inquiry describes the deaths and disappearances as genocide as a continuation of sorts of the long genocide at the hands of colonial rulers here dark stuff in addition there have been symposia and reports made in british columbia about the highway of tears calling for improved transportation and the like because we talked about this there is no transportation there is a bus that stops at like 10 o'clock and you got to pay three bucks for it so, again, folks usually hitchhike, but now they've finally, apparently, come and uh, uh, begun a process of opening a shuttle service um, in British Columbia. And that debuted in the last 18 months or so.
1: I just a- – absolutely. That's such an obvious answer to the fucking problem.
0: Right. But the shuttle only works every other day. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're putting on a Tuesday and the shuttle runs Monday, Wednesday, Friday – if you got to deliver a baby, you
1: better hold it in. Right. Hold that I, baby in.
0: I guess you can just sleep under a tree, you know.
1: <laughs> Hope for the best. Um, okay. Well, they tried, it, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there's no shortage of politicians with sympathetic rhetoric and you know positive statements, thoughts and
1: prayers, thoughts
0: and prayers, but we know the long-term solutions require systemic change. And this is this is where it gets difficult to consider because how does one even begin to engineer a change from this centuries-long process of exclusion, marginalization, othering, cultural genocide? It's
1: overwhelming. Yeah, It's it's overwhelming. It really is.
0: Super daunting. Um, But as with many of these intrepid journalists who report on these subjects, there are no shortage also of community activists and people who are advocates of these women. Um, And some of them in uh, Manitoba are covered in one of the videos that I watched um, from a Dutch news organization. And it's a group of people who kind of act like Neighborhood Watch. And they go into these, you know, they go into Winnipeg and they go into these, you know, seedy areas and areas where crime is centered. And they provide things like, you know, first aid and food and, you know, community support and things like that. Um, Other groups that take on different tacks um, that try are trying to reinvigorate and restart indigenous culture, you know, passing from generation to generation. And they're engaging in a process that is called re-indigenization. That's awesome which is amazing so it's people who are elders in the community or you know um, uh, young adults and they they meet with young people who maybe have a difficult family background or don't have anyone to support them kind of like big brothers big sisters yeah and they Center activities on cultural life on storytelling on reviving and keeping cultural traditions um, so this is a really beautiful video the journalist gets into like that the you know group has made and they're learning you know the the language for the commands and how to row the boat and what the you know what the boat symbolizes and mm-hmm. the symbols on the boat and they talk about the killer whales which we talked about in Australia and how important the orcas are to indigenous folk. Yeah. So it's like oh my gosh really powerful and positive. Yeah and giving you a sense of like my God how how quick so to speak the de-indigenization was of these folks. And how long and daunting re-indigenization can be, you know. So it's a long healing process, um, yeah. as with as with a lot of these historical, you know, long-held traumas and pain. Um, difficult, very so of course this podcast is all about where one can explore these kinds of things in a museum setting and of course there's not a lot of places one can go to experience the highway of tears
1: to, yeah to experience and, an unsolved unsolved crimes basically yeah, yeah.
0: along a, abandoned stretch of highway in canada but there are no shortage of media representation for you to explore um, there is a documentary by the name of highway of tears from mm-hmm. 2015 um, which is narrated by the lovely Nathan Fillion, which I would, um, recommend that you check out. It has a lot of interviews by family members and support networks. Um, and some of the other links will be in the, uh, in the show notes for today's episode. Um, but we wanted to just provide space to allow this story to be disseminated by no means. Am I breaking here? Some big, um, story that no one's ever heard of. Yeah. It's derived, of course, from everything else we can find out there in the research world. But I think it's really important to spread the awareness of this story as much as possible. And even giving us a little more search engine optimization in the podcast world is a positive. And so it's a really important, you know, reason why we do this to, to share our love of these stories, but also to shed light on some underreported stuff. So um, that's yeah. our that's our mission here.
1: Yeah. And I mean at, at the end of the day. <laughs> I I have a lot of head shaking at humankind. But at the end of the day, Luke and I also really love people. We love human beings. We love human history. And I feel a great sense of duty to other humans to talk about what they've experienced. And this is a nasty history. Yeah. This is really ugly stuff. And it's not easy to talk about. And frankly, it's like... It's not fun to talk about either <laughs> on a podcast where no. usually we're on the lighter side, but you know, it is, if we were making a museum like we've talked about in the first mm-hmm. episode of this show, this is a story that has to be in it. It just has to be, it's too important to ignore it any longer. Cause frankly, it's been fucking
0: ignored long enough. That's right. That's right. And you know, from our perspective in the, in the museum setting, It's usually when a story is very much over and done that the museological treatment of it may happen, Yeah, whether it be something like Salem um, or something like the Holocaust. Um, Yeah. When it's treated in a museum… It's over. We can sort of we have distance from it, whatever happened, as fallacious as that can even be with surviving and and trauma and things like that. But this story is so raw and so under resolved and underexplored,
1: yeah, and I think to its also speaks to the larger issue of we're talking about the Canadian culture was one of erasure. Mm-hmm. So there shouldn't be anything left. Mm-hmm. if they had actually completely fulfilled their mission there would be no evidence of indigenous culture and in people at this point. That's right. So they did their fucking best to make
0: sure there'd be no museum treatments. Right. And what we'd say in these narratives is that, you know, people of color who were enslaved or people who were indigenous, you know, they're, they're resisted to the record. The record was not mm-hmm. seeking to, to document them. And what's scary is that there was a recent scandal with the RCMP the the Canadian Mounted Police where they apparently deleted emails related to several what? missing and murdered indigenous women cases apparently it was yes apparently there was this like underling within the hierarchy of the RCMP like this assistant secretary something it was greg from
1: succession it was t-
0: <laughs> I am it's not real, ready. I am not ready. It's a real uh, Greg situation. It was it was like triple deleted emails. <laughs> and Greg you know, they got caught. They got called out. As they fucking should. Absolutely. No one should get a free pass. Um, and of course, like many of these cases, you, you meet these family members in these interviews who have been looking for a loved one for 25 years. They have a shed full of you know bulletin boards tacked with paper and leads and interviews. And in some cases, the police work that they have done on their own has borne out more results than the RCMP. Several women who have been actually located, their bodies, were, were located by loved ones and family and friends who were in search parties. Of course. of
1: course. Because they're doing it.
0: They're out there solely focused on this. And in this huge oh. haystack. <sighs> Man. So it's, it's a- hard to find a resolution. It's hard mm-hmm. to find a, a coda to this as we would in like a museum exhibit. Um,
1: Are there memorials at this point? Are there anything, anything along the highway itself?
0: It's a lot of roadside memorials. So a lot um, from what I've seen, Uh, you know, there's big memorials to like national reconciliation, like the Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Yeah, you mentioned that before. In terms of that, but uh, in terms of the Highway of Tears, it's basically just along the highway. So a lot of times Mm. there's, you know, a cross or a poster or a picture where someone was found. Or like I said, those Ooh, yeah that's or, or I said those like um those like you know girls don't hitchhike warning posters that then yeah. have like several pictures of you know probably funded by loved ones' families.
1: Oh god, that's giving me so much like 9-11 missing sure. posters turning into memorials. Very Ooh. similar, very yeah. similar. Yeah. Oh, that's heavy. But yeah, it serves the same purpose.
0: It serves the same purpose for sure.
1: Wow. Um, yeah. So um hopefully if you if you can post some of those images, that would be amazing to actually see.
0: For sure. Yeah. yeah. To see the highway up close, to see the des- the desolateness of it and the bleakness of it uh is sobering. Because um, like I said, you know, uh, for me, the the Canadian highways were kind of like, you know, a Gordon Lightfoot fantasy, like, you know, exploring the natural wilderness. But of course, there's another edge to it um, yeah. when it comes to this. And that's just, you know, checking my own privilege and perspective.
1: Absolutely. It's important to look at all sides of <laughs> of a place.
0: That's right. That's right. Well, thank you for um, coming along with me on this um, this journey. Through this story, that again is—I
1: did not have a good time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was not the most fun. Um,
1: I did not enjoy the ride on the highway. No, at all. Um, and yeah, in general, guys, it's it's been a heavy few weeks here on Morbid Museum. So uh, I think we're coming up on some lighter episodes for you. It's summertime. Yes. We'll keep it a little more, a little more silly. I think coming up soon. But you know, these stories are obviously crucial to our culture um, as human beings. So they need to be told even if they're not super fun or light. So, but honestly, thank you for taking the time and the the mental strain, honestly, of researching this stuff, because it is very hard to be on the researcher end of it as well, because it's, it gets overwhelming really quickly when you're reading that kind of content.
0: I appreciate that. But yeah, I you, and you, I, you, 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 you and I have a high threshold. Sadly. Um, yes.
1: <laughs> Oh, you mean dead inside? Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for listening, folks. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe and review the Morbid Museum Podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please follow us on Instagram and TikTok at The Morbid Museum. Uh, email us at TheMorbidMuseum at gmail.com and consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today at Patreon. Become a more buddy for $3 a month. As Katie mentioned at the beginning of the pod, we are changing our schedules. We'll be back next week with more Patreon content, followed by some additional new episodes coming to you this summer. Until next time, we'll see you in the North Gallery Talk inside the Morbid Museum podcast. Bye now. Bye.